You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Our main idea or summary sentence from that week was that while God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best possible outcomes for our faith. What does that mean? Well, in looking at those 16 verses, what, what stands out to me is that you've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus who are close friends of Jesus. Lazarus falls ill. The two sisters send word to Jesus and say, look, our brother is sick, right? And the expectation as you're reading this piece of literature, the expectation is that, oh, Jesus loves these people. He's going to go and heal because we know that he's capable of healing. Um, and, and maybe he could just heal him from a distance. He doesn't even have to go there. He could just speak it into existence, right? Um, but as we looked at in this passage, what we see instead uh, in verse 5 is, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So instead of running to help his friends, he stays put, right? They're over here praying for healing, sending word to their best friend Jesus to come heal brother. And Jesus says, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to hang out here longer. And, and we see why right before this, where he says that it's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. He also shares with his disciples, I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal him. Why? So that you may believe. And so what we see is that Jesus intentionally doesn't heal Lazarus, allows him to die so that the faith of the people increase, right? And so how does that apply to us? Well, it lets us know that sometimes when we are asking God for something, praying diligently for God to do something, and he doesn't answer right away, we can take comfort that his delays are delays of love, right? That it's very likely he could be saying, you know, if, 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 if John was writing a book about my life and Jesus loved Adam and stayed two days longer, right? That, that, that maybe there's things that, that I pray that Jesus will do in my own life and, and God says, not right now, right? Like two days longer or two weeks longer or two months longer, two years longer, or, or maybe even never, right? What this passage helps us to see is that God's love is not always demonstrated in ways that we would prefer, if you ask Mary and Martha, hey, does Jesus love you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the expectation would have been him demonstrating that love by healing their brother, and he doesn't. But the text very clearly says that he loves them, right? He loves those three, and he loves them so much that he doesn't heal Lazarus so that their faith can increase, right? So God always has the best possible outcomes for our faith in his plan, he demonstrates his love for us. It's just sometimes not always the way that we would prefer. If you'd asked Mary and Martha, they would have preferred that he healed Lazarus. Then they wouldn't have had to grieve uh, through his funeral. But instead, Jesus does it differently. Which brings us to verses 17 through 37, where we see that grieving process, right? It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
See, there's that expectation. Martha expected him to come and fix this. Lord, if he'd been here, my brother would not have died. Martha doesn't doubt for a second that Jesus has the power to do it. She's questioning why he didn't choose to do it. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give, a, well, God will give you. So she, she couples that with what she knows to be true. She's hurt. She's, she's grieving. Where were you, Jesus, when I needed you most? And then she kind of resets for a second and says, but I know you can do whatever you want to, right? Like you don't have to do it the way that I want you to do it. And she, she, she comes back to a correct way of thinking and says, I know right now you can do whatever it is that you want to do. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled." Remember we said in the original language, those emotions that Jesus is feeling is most likely tied to his anger about what's even causing them to have to grieve, right? We said that that he is troubled over the fact that sin leads to death, and we said that this springboards him to the cross. And so you almost, I think I used the illustration at the time, it's like uh, when, when, um, when you're in a locker room and a football team's listening to music to kind of get amped up for what's about to happen, right? This is Jesus's amp up music right here. As he attends this funeral, he is weeping with his friends. He's grieved and troubled over the fact that death is causing this pain and suffering, and he's troubled about it, and he's going to do something about it, right? He is the resurrection and the life. He is going to go to the cross, and he is going to put an end to these type of tears, right? We know from Revelation he's going to wipe them all away in the very end. And so we see this emotional side of Jesus here, greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Our summary sentence this week, we said, in order to grieve with hope, our emotions must be informed by a belief that God always remains in control He always acts in good ways, and he's intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life, all right? So remember, we talked about in Thessalonians, it says that we should not grieve as those who have no hope. And this passage was was extremely relevant to me because at this time, several weeks ago at Trinity, we were going through uh, the loss of a fourth grader. We're dealing with a fifth grader who's lost her dad, right? So, so I'm, I'm being asked to help navigate us through this grieving process, to navigate our kids through this grieving process. And as I'm studying this passage, I'm reminded we don't grieve as those with no hope, right? That we have an extreme hope in the resurrection. So we grieve because we see Jesus even grieving here, right? It's absolutely appropriate to weep and to grieve 
but we do it differently than unbelievers. We do it differently than those who, who don't have that hope of resurrection. And we do it differently by believing that God always remains in control. He always acts in good ways, and he's moving creation towards this eradication of death. And we see here, a group of people are questioning, man, could this guy even fix this? Could he, could he have healed him, right? You got Mary saying, I know you could have done it if you had been here. Martha's the one who says the same thing, but then couples it with, but you can do whatever you want, right? And that's the piece that we have to hang on to. When we grieve, when we're going through difficult times, we have to stay informed, keep our minds informed that God's in control, always acts in good ways, and he's moving creation to this final great conclusion. That, bring the, that brought us to verse 38, the actual resurrection of Lazarus. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, that, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Remember we said that um, Caiaphas was basically saying, look, we got to kill him. Better for him to die than for all of us to suffer under the hands of Rome, right? They were worried that, that Jesus was going to create this rebellion against Rome and that they were going to lose all their power and control because Israel's under the influence of Rome here, but Rome... The way they built their empire was to conquer people and then let them have at least some of their self-identity remain. And the Jews were able to function like Jewish people, but it was under the guise of, if you guys get out of control, we'll come in and squash you, right? And so Caiaphas basically says, we got to get rid of him so that we don't all suffer, right? And we said that the, the irony there is that Jesus says, and you're exactly right, I have to die so that you don't suffer, Right? And so we talked about that substitutionary atonement that Jesus does die in our place, not to spare us from the wrath of Rome, not to spare us from the wrath of any human being, but to spare us from the wrath of God. Right? All right, back to the text. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should, not let, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Our summary sentence for this week. In times of grief, we must strive to believe in the promises of God and lean on stronger believers when we are struggling to. 
realizing that while God's glory will always be accomplished, we might miss seeing it due to our lack of belief. In times of grief, we strive to believe in the promises of God. We lean on stronger believers when we're struggling to, realizing that while God's glory will always be accomplished, we might miss seeing it due to our lack of belief. If you back up there, you see Jesus having that conversation with Martha, and you see Jesus praying this prayer, right, that, that God would hear him. And he says, I know, I know you're going to hear me, but he says, I, I've prayed it essentially for the people around me to hear, right? He says in verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then prior to that, he had told Martha, had I not told you that you would see the glory of God, you need to believe, right? And so we said this week on that week's sermon, God's glory is always accomplished, but if we're not looking for it, we might miss it. Like if we're so consumed with ourselves, we may not see God's greatness being put on display around us. We also talked about the fact that when we're grieving, sometimes we need to lean on other believers who are stronger in their faith at that point so that we don't lose faith. Jesus says, I've, I've prayed this prayer for you so that you could believe better, right? And so I told you, like, even in the midst of um, what we were going through at Trinity, I was trying to be intentional when, when people were coming into my office, praying with them and trying to pray as best I could, believing truthful prayers to God, both for me to believe, but also for those listening in on those prayers to believe as well. Because we have an opportunity when we pray with somebody to pray truth that they can then believe in as they're struggling through their difficult time, right? So times of grief, believe in the promises of God, lean on stronger believers when you're struggling to, and realize that God's glory is going to happen. Don't miss it in the midst of your grieving and struggling, all right? That moves us into chapter 12 where we've uh, finished up. So in John chapter 12, verse 1, 11, 1 through 11, it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Here we said that while the extreme worth of Jesus can't be truly measured, it can be demonstrated by the ways we serve and give, which will ultimately reflect the change he brings to our hearts about what is most valuable in this life. We have two people, Judas and Mary, who are kind of compared and contrasted in this passage, right? Mary takes something that, according to Judas, is valued at about a year's salary, right? Takes this ointment that was valued a year's salary, breaks it, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. Well, that incites Judas because he's like, look, we could have given that money to the poor. In the back of his mind, he's thinking, 
Really, we could have given it to me, right? Because I'd have yanked right out of that money bag the part that I wanted. So he's very consumed with money, whereas Mary's not, right? She sees her possessions. She sees her resources. She sees her finances as a way to serve God rather than serve herself. Whereas Judas is just consumed with the things of this world, wants to serve himself. We even said that Judas is really misconstrued with his value because he puts a value on this ointment, a year's salary. He sells Jesus for four months' salary, right? You ask Judas, which one's more valuable? He'd say the ointment. Ointment's more valuable than Jesus, right? And you wasted it on Jesus. So we said for us as believers, we could never show the true value of Jesus by anything that we do here on this earth. But we can demonstrate the value that we do see in him in ways that we serve others and in the ways that we give to others as well, right? And so that reflects a heart change that has taken place in us. In verse 12, it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. <coughs> but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So two weeks ago, we said that Jesus comes to die for our salvation, which also serves as our model for imitation, meaning that in order to be with him, he calls us to be fruitful by dying, to gain life by hating it, and to find honor by serving. This passage starts with Jesus showing the type of king that he is, right? He comes riding in on this donkey, right, with a desire to bring peace, right? Not to bring war. He wasn't bringing, to, to, he wasn't bringing an idea to separate Israel from Rome. He wasn't going to deliver them from that physical oppression. He's coming to deliver them from that spiritual oppression, right? And so he comes to bring peace between man and God. And then he talks about the aspect of him dying, that he's going to die, so that we therefore can live. And, and he sets this model of example for us to understand that the best way for us to live is to die to ourselves, to serve other people, to give to others, to, to not be selfish in the way that we handle our own life, right? And so we, we follow his, his model of imitation by being fruitful in dying to ourselves, And by doing that, we actually gain life. We gain life by hating this life. We gain the life to come. And Jesus says, if you're doing this, if you're following after me, you're going to be with me, right? Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father 
will honor him. And then last week, the last sermon that we'll recap, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So that last summary sentence from last week, salvific belief, which is saving faith, right? It's a fancy way of saying saving faith. Salvific belief means that we come to an agreement with what Jesus says about himself and us through his word. And even though we may experience seasons of doubt, we are no longer inclined towards an attitude of rejecting him, right? So what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to to have saving faith? It means that you come to a point where you agree with Jesus about what he says about himself, right? That he's God, that he's perfect, that he is the necessary savior of the world. It also means you come to an agreement about what Jesus says about us, that that we are sinful, in need of a savior, incapable of fixing ourselves, right? And that the best life is following Jesus, allowing him to be our shepherd, for us to see ourselves as sheep in need of a shepherd, willing to follow him wherever he may take us. And when we make that, that agreement decision, right, we agree with Jesus about what he says about himself and us, it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden have no more doubts the rest of our life, right? Christians all the time go through seasons of doubting their salvation, doubting some of the things that they're reading in Scripture. But to me, what I see as evidence that most oftentimes a doubting Christian is most likely a Christian is that There's this division between those who believe in Jesus and those who reject Jesus, right? 
that these people in these passages that we're reading about were people who rejected Jesus, were antagonistic towards Jesus, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, really wanted him out of their life to the point of killing him, right? So salvation faith means we agree with Jesus about himself, about us through what we see in his word. And even though there's seasons of doubt, we're no longer inclined towards an attitude of rejecting him. It was super encouraging this week. I asked you guys last week to pray about our discipleship day at Trinity on Wednesday. And man, we had breakout after breakout, chapel service after chapel service, small group discussion. Um, and then, you know, the days after that, Thursday and Friday, just praying that, that the word would take root, um, that there would be fruit from, from the labors that were taking place. And um, even pray, I even, at our faculty prayer time, um, I prayed on Friday. I said, Lord, I pray that today would be um, it, would, it would be filled with spiritual moments for our kids that would be of eternal significance, right? And then at the end of the, at the, end of the school day on Friday, I had two of my teachers who I respect greatly. So it's, it's teachers that, that I, I believe know the gospel, know how to communicate the gospel, came to me and said, you know, on two different occasions in the afternoon that, that they led two students to Christ. Um, that one kid had been having conversations with another student since Snowbird, which was back in September, so an eighth grader. Um, then another girl that we've been really working on hard uh, asked for uh, a conversation with one of our female teachers. And through the course of the afternoon, both made professions of faith in Christ. And, and I told you guys at the beginning of this book that, that I was going to be praying for people to come to Christ, for us to see people coming to Christ, and that I wanted to move into the category of, of being a type of person who believes that people are believing in Jesus and not being the skeptic who says, I don't know, right? Like, like I, I want to stop being the guy who says, I don't know. I don't know about that, right? Like, I want to believe that Jesus does call people to believe in him and that he, that, he, that he breathes life into them, that he shines light into the darkness. And so, and I'm trusting that these two students know Jesus now and that they're, they're going to be... Uh, uh, living with the Holy Spirit and dwelling them and moving towards being conformed to the image of Christ. And, and that's exactly what, what's been presented to them, that this is what Jesus says about himself. This is what Jesus says about you. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? And for both of these, both of these students to say yes, I mean, that's God's glory shining forth, right? That's God's glory shining forth. Real quick, four things that I want you to remember. I've just said a ton trying to catch our visitors up on where we've been the last six weeks. Four things that I would want you to remember, our people and those that are visiting today that you can kind of take with you. Number one, God loves me in ways I don't always expect and to lengths I cannot imagine, right? We see in, on one side, Jesus delaying his activity because he loves us, right? He loves Mary and Martha, therefore he does not act in that situation, from the human side, we'd say, if you loved them, you would have healed their brother. The text says, because he loved them, he did not heal their brother, right? So that their faith would increase. God loves us in ways we don't always expect, and he loves us to links that we can't imagine. Going back to that substitutionary atonement piece, he dies in our place so that we may have life. And there's going to be times where we question whether God could love us or not because of this thing that we've done in our life, right? We can't fathom the amount of love that God has for us. Even on the cross, you know, I told you, we're so quick to, to watch the passion of the Christ and to grieve over the physical pain that Jesus went through. And he certainly did. 
uh, but plenty other people were crucified as well, right? When Jesus talks about being troubled, he's troubled about the spiritual separation that took place between him and his heavenly Father on our behalf, right? That he bore the wrath of God, not just through physical pain, but through a, through a spiritual separation that occurred, right? We can't, we can't fathom the amount of love that God has for us. Number two, God's glory is more important than my wants and should be viewed as my promised good, right? Romans eight twenty eight says that God works everything for the good of his children, right? That's a promise given to us, but that does not mean that everything goes the way that we want it to, right? That he does everything that we want him to. It does mean that God works in our life so that his glory is accomplished and that that glory is always good for us. It's always good for us. So even in the midst of troubling times, suffering times, difficult times, we can trust, we can cling to a hope that his glory, his greatness is going to shine forth in that situation and it will be for our good, right? His glory is more important than my wants should be viewed as my promise good. Number three, death is being redeemed by God for his purposes under his control. Death is being redeemed by God for his purposes under his control. Everybody in this room has been touched by death at some point. Um, and, and for our kids, eventually they're going to be touched by death too, right? They're going to lose somebody that, that they hold dear to their heart. As believers, we can trust that God uses death, death, which is the consequences of sin, that he redeems that and uses it even for good purposes, right? Like he uses Lazarus's death to increase the faith of his disciples. He takes something evil and awful, right? And redeems it for good purposes. Now, there's coming a day where he's gonna put an end to death, right? Like his last enemy, he will defeat death once and for all. He's initiated that through the resurrection. It will come to completion when he comes back, not on a donkey this time, but riding on a white horse of victory, right? And, and, and death will be eradicated and there will be no more death and there will be no more tears, right? But in the meantime, death still happens, right? And, and today on my birthday, like, like I think about like, how many years do I have left, right? Like, am I halfway through my life? Am I, am I over halfway through my life? I don't know. Death's coming for me at some point unless Jesus comes back, right? And, and the good news for us as believers um, is that death is used by God, for good purposes. He's under control of our life. And number four, believers should demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. Believers should demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. As you're writing that down, um, back on, on point number three, death is being redeemed by God for his purpose under his control. We don't have to question whether God can act. We know that he can. We can guard against disappointment when he doesn't act and know that that delay is a delay of love. We can find hope in his alternate ways of acting. And, and maybe the big thing for me that I take away from this passage is that we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus weeps with us when we're going through a difficult time, right? We, um, we had a, a little ceremony in our prayer garden at Trinity uh, for the Muscle family who lost their fourth grader. And um, it's just a hard time for them, right? Like, it's one thing to lose somebody when they're 70, 80 years old, and you're kind of expecting, hey, you know, life's coming to an end for that individual. For a fourth grader who's, who's seemingly had life fully out in front of her, 
uh, to be taken at such a young age. I mean, it's just it's hard. It's difficult. Like, I, I can't imagine really what it is they're feeling and thinking on a daily basis. Um, but in this little ceremony in our prayer garden, um, I was asked to, to kind of lead us in prayer. And it was, it was right after we had studied this passage. Um, and I was able to pray one of those believing prayers and, and just thanking Jesus that, hey, we're not the only ones crying about this, that, that you're up in heaven and you're not okay with this either, right? Like, like you're not okay with the fact that we're, we're suffering down here and we're sad and distressed and, and weeping over this. And, and to know that Jesus is up in heaven and he's, and he's troubled probably in the same way that he was with Lazarus' funeral, right? Like, like I'm coming to get you guys soon, right? Like the horse is getting ready and I'm coming soon and death is going to stop and it's going to be finished, right? So we, we take great comfort in that. And as believers, as we wait for that day to happen, we demonstrate our faith in Jesus with service and sacrifice, right? Like we, we model what both Martha and Mary show to us. You got Martha who's busy serving with her passions and giftings for, for that meal preparation, right? And then you got Mary, who's, who's got like a, a wealthy thing that she can give to Jesus. So she's got the financial resources. Martha's got the servant's heart, and they're both very active in serving Jesus. And, and we can follow that, that model as well as Christians, right? That, that we want to serve faithfully, and we want to give faithfully in response to our faith. So remember that God loves me in ways I don't always expect, to links I can't imagine. God's glory is more important than my wants and should be viewed as my promised good. Death is being redeemed by God for his purposes under his control. And then believers should demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. It's the four things that I want you to remember from John 11 and 12. And then real quick, the four things to do. Number one, make sure you are grounding yourself in the word regularly. Remember, the Pharisees tell Jesus, hey, you're talking about being a dying Messiah? That's not what we've heard about the Messiah, right? Like we've always been told that the Messiah lives forever. And we said that the Pharisees were, were not seeing God's word like they needed to, because yes, there's plenty of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah's eternal reign, but there's also plenty of passages that talk about the suffering servant that the Messiah would be too, right? What I desire for you here at this church is that you're not a group of people who have heard a lot of things about God and never seen them for yourself in his word. Your faith really is only as sustainable as what you've seen in the word yourself, right? Like, because here's, here's what happens all the time. People hear about God from a pastor like me, and then a pastor like me makes a stupid mistake and falls and disqualifies himself, and then it throws an individual's faith all out of whack. It's like, man, everything I've ever heard about God comes from that guy. And now what am I supposed to do that that guy has messed up? right? I don't want your experience with God and what you know about God to be limited to what I've told you about him, right? I don't want you to associate your knowledge about God with me because the moment I fail you, now it's going to be very difficult for you to mesh everything that I've told you about God, right? Like I want to, I want to introduce you to God on a Sunday morning and, and, and give you the opportunity to then go and immerse yourself in who he is in the word yourself, right? I don't want it to just be something that you've heard. I want you to know God through his word. Make sure you're grounding yourself in the word regularly. Know what it says, not what you've heard only. Number two, find ways to serve God sacrificially. Man, step back this week and just look at your life and say, is there anything that I'm doing 
that is sacrificially being done for somebody else in the name of Jesus, right? We are so prone to self-preserve ourselves, to do things that we want to do, to use our time and our energy and our resources to serve ourselves. We have to have outlets where we are saying, you know what? I do this over here and I don't really benefit from it, right? Like this is for somebody else. It costs me something, whether that's financially, whether that's time and energy, whatever that may look like, that you are faithfully putting yourself in a position to give sacrificially to others. It's how we show that we love, right? We read from um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, a couple weeks ago. We were talking about Martha and her sacrifice of the ointment. In Hebrews 13, verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? We don't have Jesus' feet to go pour ointment on today. But we do have a whole bunch of people in our life that could use us. That could use us. Right? And so we look for ways to serve sacrificially. I encourage you personally, step back and ask yourself, am I doing anything in the name of Jesus for others that is causing me to sacrifice? I put in my notes, sacrificial service isn't easy, but should be satisfying if you keep your eyes on the one that you're serving. You may not have fun being a sacrificial server, but it ought to be satisfying at the end of the day, knowing that you have been obedient in giving of yourself. Number three, keep believing him, and when times of doubt come, find hope in that you are no longer rejecting him. We said all along in this study of John that John is a book not for unbelievers to come to believe in Jesus. It is, but it's far more than that. It's for believing Christians to increase their belief in Jesus too, right? So keep believing him. When times of doubt come, find hope in that you are no longer rejecting him. And then lastly, number four, look for ways to make much of God, especially in troubling times. To me, these are four important applications that come out of John 11 and 12 for us. We need to be in the Word regularly, know what it says, not just what we've heard. We need to be looking for ways to serve God sacrificially. We need to keep believing Him even when times of doubt come. And we certainly need to look for ways to make much of God, especially in troubling times, because He says, look, my glory is going to be, be happening. It's going to be happening all around you. You can either choose to see it or choose to miss it. Right? If you're so self-consumed with your struggles, you're going to miss the glory that's being put on display. Right? We, don't, we don't make God more glorious by the way that we react in a situation. Right? He's glorious in and of himself. Right? But we make that more visible to people, the way that we react in a situation. We take a glorious God who was already glorious and we make him known to others the way that we act in situations of trouble. As we're turning to him and believing in him and trusting in him, man, it makes God look good to other people. Man, it makes him look like he is the foundation of our faith, right? So let's keep seeking to do that as a church family. I'm gonna close, and we're gonna close like we always do, um, and that's by taking of the Lord's Supper. And so um, we wanna invite Anybody and everybody that would, would like to partake this morning that's visiting with us to participate with us, we just ask that it be done by believers only. Okay, so we do believe here at our church that the Lord's Supper is for believers, but you don't have to be a member of our church to partake. So we'd love to have you partake with us 
Um, we do it a little bit differently, and we've, we're making two stations here since we've got so many people today. So we've got a same setup in the back. Normally we just have it in the back, but we're going to put one up front too to cut down on the amount of time. We do it in an effort to show unity, and so we don't have individual pieces of bread and individual cups. We're not going to ask you all to drink after each other, though, so don't worry about that. Um, but we do uh, tear the bread ourselves, and then we just dip it in the cup um, and partake of the Lord's Supper that way. So um, you're invited, no pressure, you don't have to, but we'd love to have you if you would like participate with us. We do this every application Sunday. Churches do it differently. Some take it every week, some take it quarterly. We do it every six to eight weeks whenever we do application Sunday because it's kind of our end to this service in that basically we're saying, hey, we're still choosing Jesus. We want to do what his word says, right? And one of the things that he commands us to do is to partake of the Lord's Supper until he comes back, right? That one day we're going to sup with him. We're going to eat and dine with him, right? And until that day comes, we just do it together, right? So we eat, we eat breakfast together, and then we partake of the Lord's Supper on these days uh, to hopefully anticipate or create further anticipation for that great day when we stop doing this without Jesus and we eat with him, okay? So just to clarify here, this doesn't save you, doesn't make you more saved. Um, it, it's simply an act of obedience, and it's meant to be an encouragement to other believers themselves to know that there are other people who are still saying yes to Jesus too. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us. You're invited to come and partake either here in the front or in the back. Those of you that are sitting more to the front probably make more sense to come to the one in the front. That way you're not crossing paths with each other. Those sitting towards the back, partake in the back. And then once everybody's had a chance to partake, we're going to close with a song um, and get you guys out of here. All right, let me pray for us. God, I thank you for what you're teaching us in the Gospel of John. I thank you for the chance to just recap that today. I know people are visiting with us that, that haven't been here at all. So God, I hope that, that there was clarity in what was said um, for them to be able to take something away today. Um, Father, for those that are members here that have maybe been in and out the last couple of weeks, I pray that today was helpful in us being able to see John 11 and 12 all together in its context. God, help us to remember these things as we leave. Help us to do the things that we've seen as well. Um, God, we want to love you more, believe in you more, trust you more, especially difficult times being on our horizon, I'm sure, for some of us. God, help us to be clinging to you most tightly during those times. In the meantime, Father, I pray that we would look for ways to sacrificially give of ourselves to others as well. Help it to be uh, a means or a way for us to show how valuable we believe you are, that we're willing to uh, be perceived as one who hates this life because we love you so much. God, give us wisdom in knowing how to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.